In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. And gentlemen, it's Friday. It looks like we made it. I'm so excited that we're here. I hope everybody has a cool weekend planned. But more than that, I hope the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and the wind is at your back. I've got an uh, incredibly inspirational show for you today with an amazing individual, the one and only Supriya Venkatation. Embark, embark with us on a journey into the extraordinary as we unveil this narrative. A luminary whose influence spans continents, cultures, and the very fabric of human connection. With a dynamic fusion of expertise drawn from an 18-year odyssey encompassing marketing, journalism, and military service, Supriya stands as a beacon for executives and entrepreneurs seeking the pinnacle of their potential. A maestro of communication, Supriya's mastery extends across the intricate tapestry of the mind, the art of dialogue, and the harmonious orchestration of collective consciousness within organizations. Armed with a master's degree in strategic communication from Columbia University, she's a certified trainer and master coach in neurolinguistic programming, weaving her insights seamlessly through the realms of media, military, and mindfulness. In the realm of accolades, Supriya's brilliance shines brightly from receiving the Ad Color Award for exemplary leadership in DEI to being honored with the Commandments Award by the U.S. Army. She embodies excellence at every turn. A combat veteran with six years in the U.S. Army, Supriya's leadership prowess has honed leading diverse teams across three continents. Supriya, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? Great. That was that was quite an intro. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's like an opportunity for me to get to frame the person with whom I'm speaking and in a way I, I see them and I want the rest of the audience to see them. And, and now it's your turn to back it up a little bit. Like I think I feel like after reading some of the stuff you've been doing and writing and some of your articles, I feel like you've lived multiple lifetimes already. Yeah, it does feel like that. I feel like I go through a rebirth like every two years. <laughs> yeah, I can see it too. Like in, in a lot of when I was when I was making the promo video, like you have so many different looks. And all I could think about was like, I wonder if that's because of the different perspectives she sees the world in. Like you see it through the military's per perspective and you see it through a journalism perspective. Maybe we could touch on that a little bit. Like yeah. 
how do you have all these just diverse looks at how you see the world? Like, where does that come from? That's, that's a really good question. Um, and I agree that I think that I've changed because of the perspectives I've held and it's evolved mm -hmm. over time. Uh, and it's not like dropping the old perspective, but merging with the new. And then each time it just merges and, and evolves into something bigger and more expansive. But as far as where it comes from, I think a lot of it has to do with my childhood. I lived between two different countries uh, for the first eight years, no, first nine years of my life. I'm originally from the Fiji Islands in a small, tiny village. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, for most people who probably don't know the history of the Fiji Islands, there was a coup in 1987. So when I was two years old, we had our first coup. We've had, uh, I think, four total since then. And a lot of the uh, Indian population left at that time. At that time, about 85% of the population was Indian and the remaining was indigenous. Today, it's 50% Indian. So a lot of migration occurred. And my mother was one of those people. She moved to Los Angeles. Um, my father stayed in Fiji. They were going through a divorce, a separation, and then eventually a divorce. So because of that, I switched countries every six or 12 months. So I was in LA, in like downtown LA, very urban, very like impoverished LA, eating McDonald's, wearing jeans, like just, you know, living a very American lifestyle, urban American lifestyle. And then six months later, I'd be in this tiny village in Fiji where I'm not allowed to wear pants because I'm a girl. <laughs> I speak Hindi. I don't speak English or Spanish, which I'm now learning. There's no McDonald's anywhere in the country. So... <laughs> You know, just very different ways of living just just became my norm. And I didn't think it was weird until I got older. And I'm like, oh, that's not how people live. So I think I became very adaptable and able to hold different perspectives. Wow. It's amazing to think. First off, thanks for sharing that story. And it's amazing to think the way in which we are we live our lives as children can give us in a unique perspective and, and later in life. And sometimes these things that we think are tragedies can end up being almost like a superpower, like the ability yeah. to translate culture. Like that's a beautiful superpower to have. Like, Oh, you, you don't know that. Oh, you don't know that. Like you're, you're talking about two different worlds there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's pros and cons for my brother. Yeah. Um, for him, it was very challenging for me. It was, it was a gift. I loved it. So I think it's your personality has a lot to do with it, which is changeable. Um, but it's how you approach it. Yeah. It's well said. And, it seems to me that you've covered this idea that you speak multiple languages. Like, I think that that's another lens in which you have to see the world because you have yes. to think in a certain language or speak in a certain language. And often when you're translating those languages in your mind, you have to think about, well, what, what does that mean? Or how, how do you say that? And like, that gives you a whole nother world of empathy and perspective on things. You find that to be accurate as well? hundred percent. And I take it further, like even dream in a different language or love wow. in a different language, you know, the, wow. the way we feel. Um, my native language is Hindi, but I barely speak it today. English is how I just go through the world. But even now, if I watch a Bollywood movie, there's just some tug in my heart that an American film can, like it can, it can never occur for me. Uh, and it's just because of that language. It's so like deep part of who I am. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We got to, we got to dive on. What does it mean to love in another language? Mm. Well, even like in Hindi, uh, like the word love, there's five different ways of saying it. In English, there's only one word for love. So right away, it's like love has many facets, right? There's romantic love. There's familial mm -hmm. love. There's lust, which is different than infatuation, which is different than a marriage that's been around for 40 years. Like love has so many aspects to it. So I think from the perspective of language, that's one thing. Yeah. 
even like with my daughter, yeah sorry, sorry go ahead no you know, please with my daughter i have a child she's eight years old and you know i i, I do slip into hindi sometimes when i call her like uh like beti is how you say daughter in hindi and it's just different than saying it in english for me because well in english you wouldn't say oh my daughter come here like we just don't do that but in in, in hindi we do so it's a it's a different kind of endearment so my love opens in a different way if that makes sense yeah it does I think that it has profound consequences on all relationships when you can think, speak, and live in another language, whether that be a cultural language or it just gives you so much more empathy. Like when you, you, you may have found yourself in this situation, and I, I have a couple times, and I know a lot of my listeners have, when you don't speak a language well and you're in a foreign country and you're trying to understand what someone is telling you, like you're really focusing on their facial features, their body mm -hmm. language, because you know some of the words, but maybe it's they're speaking it fast and you can't really compute it. So you're really digging into all these other symbolic forms of language. And that particular idea is translated like that kind of becomes second nature. And then you find yourself in business or in a leadership role. You really, you are again using that skill to look deep into the person. Like, what are they really telling me here? Right. Yeah. Well, language is only a small component of communication, mm. which I, most people don't realize. But body language is a huge part of it, as well as tonality of your voice and the way you control your voice and how people perceive it. Right. If I say, you know, uh, come here or come here, they're two very different interpretations. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And that's just tonality. So I think sp speaking of business and leadership or even traveling, um, I always try to pick up some words because people always are more open when you just know even a few right. words of their country. They're like, oh, this pe people, person actually cares about me at right. some level. But aside from that, I think picking up on all the nonverbal stuff is really, really powerful. Yeah. I love the idea of communication and language and symbolism and, and the whole aspect of, of relationships to me is fascinating. And you have like, you have a really intense background in communication. Is that, where, where did that, did you think that that love of communication is something that was formed out of necessity for you? Or is it something you're attracted to? Or is it just something that you've been around the whole, your whole life? So you were kind of drawn to like, what's your, what is your relationship with communication? Yeah, communication is the undercurrent, I'd say, of my entire life, starting <laughs> from a young age. Um, but, you know, I, I always wonder, like, why are some people one way and not somebody else? Like my brother, I would use, he's mm -hmm. no longer alive, but it wasn't for him, right? It was storytelling, communication wasn't a right. part of his life, but it was for me, but with the same experiences as, as children. So I think it is something that's unique to me. Where does it come from? I don't know. It's just the way my brain was shaped compared to his, maybe prior to birth. Um, but when I was very young, when I was in fourth grade, I remember, uh, writing a story, um, about my experiences in Fiji and my, this was in America though. Mm -hmm. And my teacher, uh, called my mother and brought, and brought her to school and said, your daughter is really good at writing stories. <laughs> we need to encourage us. And my mom's like, she's Indian. She's not going to, she's not gonna write stories. She's going to be a doctor or engineer they're, they're, No yeah. arts that that's not going to work. And I was just like, Nope, you can't do that. It's not allowed. And then it left my brain until mm -hmm. I got much, much older. Um, well, actually it was when I was in eighth grade, I was an NPR because of a story that I wrote in school. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I didn't know at the time, like what that meant. Right. Cause again, it wasn't encouraged at, at mm -hmm. home. So it was very much suppressed. The love of storytelling and community. I never thought it was a, an option for me as a mm. career or even a form. I didn't even know people could go to school for it. Like that wasn't. <laughs> this is before it, the internet, right? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so I'm I couldn't go to Google and and type in like communications degrees. So yeah, it took a long time to figure out that that's 
my jam. <laughs> Is that how, you know, a lot of times we, we unfairly classify people as like linear or nonlinear or engineers think like this way or really very logical down the road. I'm curious as I, as your inner dialogue, like, do you, is that how you see your life as a story mm -hmm. or is it like you approach your life as a main character in a story or what's your philosophy on, on how you, your inner dialogue and how you approach the world? Well, look at your narrative. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely approach life as a story. I feel like everyone <laughs> goes with the hero's journey over yeah. and over again, but that temp template is there for a reason and we all right. live it. You just have mm -hmm. to recognize the patterns when they occur. Um, do I see myself as a main character? That's a great question. I do, but I also see myself as a guide going to the hero's journey mm -hmm. uh, because you know I coach. That's that's what I do for a living. Right. I guide people. So I, I feel that that's the, the character I play these days more. Yeah. You're like the Obi-Wan Kenobi in the in Luke Skywalker, the Star mm -hmm. Wars, right? Where you're finding people. And is it, do you find that your lived experience is something that attracts the people that need help in your life? You know what I mean by that? Like you've gone through these different things and these different walks and you've taken these different paths. Do you find that the people that reach out to you are on a similar path and that that's why they're attracted to you? Yeah, I'd say the people that I attract are multidimensional and like multi-passionate and very global. And those are all aspects of who I am, who I am. I've lived on multiple continents at this point in my life, not just travel, but like lived. Um, I've, you know, been exposed to so much uh, professionally, both, you know, military, corporate, running my own business. And most people are just like one piece of life. And but not everyone is like that. So I think the people that I attract are like, yeah, multidimensional is the word I would use. And their blend, I would say, of like being very spiritual and open to that, like beyond emotional intelligence, like there's some energy there, which is a big mm. part of my work. But also, let's be very, you know, real, like there's business outcomes we need to focus on. <laughs> we need an ROI, there's objectives, like that doesn't go away. <laughs> it's really true. It On some level, I think this is, speaks to another dimension of language. And I see it with all the people that I've been talking to lately in my life and it seems that if you slow down and pay attention, that there's a language to life. And an example of that is, you know, I remember not too long ago, I was sitting out in my my back patio. I'd taken a rather large dose, a medium dose of some mushrooms. I was sitting out there just thinking, and I saw like this vine that had climbed up this tree, and it had like this flower was blooming out of it. Like it's already a beautiful thing, right? I'm like, wow. But then I started thinking to myself, how does it know to climb two thirds up that tree and then produce a flower at a 45 degree angle on August 7th at 3.33 p.m.? Like, How does it know that? And then all of a sudden I realize it's talking to me like, how do I know to leave this job that I don't want to be at and take a chance to start this new place over here? And I'm like, oh, my God, like that's the world talking. Like, that's the language of the environment that is speaking to us if we have the courage and the eyes and the ears to listen to it. Do you, is that, does that, is that part of your jam? Are you vibing with that? Is One, that a language? Yes. hundred percent. I would call that energy, you know, okay. and, and that's also backed by science, which people don't realize like, Oh, it's this world of woo woo, but energy <laughs> is very real. Yeah. We can, we can measure it. We can see the effects of collective consciousness. There's been mm -hmm. so many numerous studies done. Um, so that's energy to me. That is the, even below, um, below communications is, is that, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about how the energy that we need or the energy that we get is is it's always around us. Like there's a world of communication around us. And I I think that speaks to the idea of of being successful in life or even 
being depressed or having anxiety in life. It's like there's all this communication around you. And if you can tap into it, then you can find the direction on the path. But, there, but there's a lot of noise out there. How do you separate the signal from the noise? Mm, I think it's learning to quiet your mind. And I would mm. say there's, you know, going back to what you're describing of the plant climbing and you making a decision and knowing what to do when in both both you and the plant, there's a universal intelligence at play. You know, whether you call it God, the universe, yeah. the a name of a deity, it doesn't matter. I think it's un science. It doesn't matter what you call it, but it's undeniable there is a universal intelligence that's beyond this planet Earth, right? There, It's been there. And then being um, harmonized with our own energy, with that intelligence and being able to tune into it. And that's like true flow state. It's beyond just measuring your brainwave patterns. When you're able to just flow and see synchronicity, synchronicities, you know, pop up in your life constantly, that's when you're in tune with it. But it starts with quieting the mind. That's how you get, you have to get rid of the noise. There's so much things that we have, you know, emotions, beliefs, all of these things, these, these mental habits that prevent us from quieting the mind. So that's, I think that's the path. I love the way you said that. And when you talk about synchronicities, like it, I, I just recently started working with uh, Susan Brown and this company called Token of Me. And they have this, they, it's like a, uh, you hook up this, they call it a soul compass. And it's really amazing. Like they are they're able to use like 32 different metrics to find when you're in the flow state. They're still fine tuning it a little bit, but it's amazing to think what's possible, not only when you're in the flow state, but when you start monitoring how you get into that flow state. I think yes. that speaks to the energy you're talking about. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about the flow state and what's your relationship with it. Sure. Yeah. I, I love flow state. I love being in it. I love guiding people into it. Um, as you know, it is measurable uh, through different mechanisms. Uh, brainwave patterns is, is how I've mm. um, seen it measured in the past, but I'm sure there's other ways. And right. then heart coherence. I don't know if you're familiar heart with the heart map institute. Yeah. That's another aspect to it. But um, flow state is an experience. Um, it's very similar to what some people call like runner's high. Um, you know, if you've ever, for anyone who's listening who's a runner or done any sort of, you know, physical exercise, you get in this feeling of like, oh my God, like I'm high, but I'm not using drugs. So that's like, <laughs> that's like flow state. Yeah. I mean, it's not psychedelic, but it is, you know, an expression or a feeling of just being different. And if, when you're working, it happens often in a creative process or even a non-creative process. You just feel like everything just flowing, things just come out of you. Right. To me, when I write, it's almost like I'm channeling. And I think that's what a lot of creatives say, you know, people throughout history, not just today. Mm -hmm. It's like something just pouring through me and it's not me. It's something bigger than me. So to me, the flow state is when you're again, going back to that divine universal intelligence. So like you're at one with it, you're connected mm -hmm. to it. But to me, that is like the most uh, profound experience of flow state. I love it. I think in some of your videos that I were watching, you talk about journaling. And I think you bring up this exact idea of co-creation where something's kind of writing with you, like you're writing this thing together. Maybe you could share a little bit about that story with the audience today. Um, sure. Um well, it, it, it just happens. I don't, I, I mean, started when I, when I started meditating was the first time right. it occurred. Um, and I remember I was an undergrad. I, I lived in an ashram type of community uh, in Fairfield, Iowa, where everyone meditates, um, all the residents in that town. And I've written about it as well for the Washington Post, if anybody wants to read it. So it's, it's a very different environment as meditating by yourself because you've got the support of thousands of people who are meditating with you twice a day, every single day. But after shortly after living in that community, uh, one uh, day, I just felt like writing. It was like late at night, like 9 p.m. And I just 
couldn't stop writing till 5 a.m. which is like just pouring out of me and I couldn't control it. Um, and that was my first experience. So since then I've learned there are ways to like trigger flow right mm -hmm. through meditation is obviously something you just begin with meditation. What occurs is um, the analogy that I, I'm, that I like to use is like dipping a cloth. Like back in the day when the way people used to um, color clothes was with through, through dye, like food dyes and whatnot. You would dip the cloth once and you bring the cloth out and you'd have some color, but not enough, right? And you'd hang it out to dry. You'd dip it again and bring it out. It would color again. You just keep this process and eventually it just becomes that color. So consciousness of your mind is the same way. When you meditate, you dip it into that like deep reservoir of you know, intelligence that's collective. And then you dip it again. And over time, you just become one with it. So to me, when you're in flow or tapping into that channeling experience through any creative work, mm -hmm. it's coming more and more. It becomes a habit. It becomes a natural part of you. So I think that's one example. But there's other things too. You can trigger flow through, you know, reducing cognitive load by creating somatic triggers in your body. Uh, the analogy I like to use here is like Pavlov's dogs, right? <laughs> that, <laughs> there was a very real thing that occurred. The, you know, the stimulus used to be the food and the response was a salivation where the stimulus became the bell and the salivation of the mouth was there. In the same way in our body, we're programmed to to have triggers. So again, you can change that and play with it. So there's many ways I think to get into flow and to have it uh, more often than not. And those are the experiences. <laughs> yeah, it's really that those are beautiful ways to describe it. What What do you think is the relationship? It's, you know, sometimes when you become aware of something, you mess it up. You know, then we have the idea of like the Schrodinger's cat when they come in there. It's not they mess it up, but like you, just being aware of it changes the outcome. Maybe I shouldn't say yeah. mess it up. Just being yeah. aware of something like changes it. And I've noticed that sometimes when you're in the flow state and you become aware of it, it's kind of slippery. You're like, oh, I'm out of it right it now, you know, or maybe you could like how since you have such a great background in communication, how can I better describe that? Maybe you can help me with that. Mm, yeah. So I think we, yeah, the, the example of the Schrodinger, I think is the way you pronounce it. Cat is a great yeah. um, example and also of the particle and the wave function, right? right. Uh, yeah. So for anyone here who's listening, who's not familiar with it, um, science shows us that if you look at a particle, it can become a wave or it cannot become a wave. And it's through the observer effect. Um, so as soon as you introduce the observer, like just somebody, an eyeball looking at it, it changes energy at its most uh, minute level changes just through the process of observation, yeah. uh, like atoms change. <laughs> so that means every moment of life that we have, whatever we are observing and thinking about in the moment of observation can impact our reality. This is like, <laughs> it's real science. Yep. Um, and so I try to be very conscious of my thoughts personally, and I teach people to be that as well. Uh, it is a very slippery slope, but the, I also believe in parallel realities. I don't know if that's too much for this audience. No, it's um, beautiful. It's, we'll get into it after this part. Okay, cool. So I think when we're, in my experience, if I'm changing my thoughts and changing my observation, I'm jumping into a different reality and I can change back. Mm. Like if it's something that I don't like, like you're saying, oh, something went wrong. Yeah. Okay, I just need to change my thinking and become that identity of the person who's in other reality and I can just shift back. Sometimes, depending on how far that gap is, it can take a long time or it can take a short time, right? It can take seconds or it can take a year, um, but you can definitely shift it back. And I, th I think that's the mechanics. I love it. Yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan of that. And I've I've 
thought about that in different ways, but I don't know that I've ever heard anybody put it exactly that way. That's that's wonderful. I can you give me an example of me and the audience an example of like when you've been able to shift those realities. And was it a large shift? What is a small shift? Or you know, give done, us an example. Done all, yeah, I've done both small and large. Yeah, um, I, I'm guaranteed. <laughs> I'll give a I'll oh, give yeah. a small a smaller okay. example, which like, that might yeah. be relatable. Um, I remember uh, I was in Europe. I was traveling, um, mm-hmm. and we were going to to Heathrow, the airport, to leave. And somehow there was some giant accident or something happened in the traffic. This was a few years ago, and I couldn't get to my plane on time. Right, I had left extremely early. I was actually, I think, uh, driving from Paris. We're on this like road trip through Europe adventure thing with me, and my friends, and we're on our way to Heathrow. But we were like three hours. Like the the the, the Google Maps said we we're three hours to it, and my flight was gonna like leave in an hour. And I'm like, and I've already been sitting in traffic for hours like it was I don't remember what was happening but it was really bad like half a day just sitting there trying to get there and I was like what do I do like this is if I miss this flight this is really, I had to be somewhere very important the next day so I was like this was really really bad so I just shifted my thought and I'm not kidding you within five minutes like the traffic just broke and I got to my flight on time because the traffic changed so you know the the the, the driving time reduced and I made my flight just fine and got there it's it's mind blowing to me to not only hear these these particular stories, but also in my life. It, sometimes I think that the outer world is a direct manifestation of what's going on in your mind, and if it's cluttered, and if you're just in this wavelength or this mood where everything is shitty, then your life is kind of shitty. Like all of a sudden, these bad things start happening to you. It's like you're making those things happen. Yes, like you can choose if that's a good thing. Like, you can't maybe maybe you can't choose what happens, but you get to control the meaning of that event, and that's even more powerful, yeah. right? Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. I think you know our our reality is created by the thoughts we have. And go, going, sorry, just going back to that story, I think part of it is also surrender, which is an emotional component. So it's going beyond cognitive. Like I'm hundred percent about like changing your belief systems, but there is an element of surrender as well, which I think is important. Yeah, maybe you could speak about that. For me, the idea of I went, let me just tell you this quick little journey that I was on for a while. I thought surrender was like this weak word. Cause I always thought about it. Like, you know, I would read the, who's the, who's the greatest generals. And you start looking at these different like Scipius and you just start reading all these generals. And like, you start getting this idea that like surrender, surrender sounds weak. And I think, especially in the Western world, we have this idea, like you're quitting, you're giving up. But then the more you begin to embrace the idea of surrender, you start reading a little bit of Sufi poetry. You start thinking about Hmm, maybe I should surrender a little bit to these silly ideas that I have, you know, and like it changes the mm. whole aspect of it a little bit and it does allow you to get out of your own way. But maybe you could speak to the idea of surrender, what it means to you and how it's helped you become a better person. To me, surrender is about dropping the ego mm-hmm. because there's different parts of who you are, right? There's these layers and ego is the part that wants to control, that wants to force, that wants to make things happen. And that's great. It has its place. It's part of our identity. It's important. But if you can drop the ego and surrender to, you know, lack of a better word, your higher self, which is beyond this identity and this incarnation and in this lifetime and this uh reality amongst parallel realities if i can surrender to something bigger which is still me that can see all of these things that i can't see and and know things that i can't know then mm-hmm. that's that's to me a surrender yeah on some level i think surrender is surrender is sometimes a pathways to self-love 
Yes. Right. Doesn't that kind of make sense? Yes. Love is a big part of it. (laughs) Going back to the, you know, you're talking about um, flow state. So heart coherence, right? We talk a lot about brain intelligence, but the heart has its own intelligence, which the HeartMath Institute has, you know, codified at this point and done numerous studies on, but there is an electricity controls our body and it's Mm -hmm. everywhere Mm -hmm. and it's part of the heart and you can measure it. And if once you can get the, your heart and your brain to be in coherence, then that's opening up the heart, like literally, you're literally opening up channels in your body on a physical level, but you're also experiencing love, right? Both love, self-love, and then love for others and other sentient beings. It's beautiful. I, I was just talking, there's a great book you should check out. I'll introduce you to uh, Shanaz Soni. She's a, she works at NASA. She's like an aerospace She's incredible. I'll just start, I'll start right there. She's an incredible individual. She's like yeah. so many people that come on this podcast like yourself. And she was speaking quite a bit about the idea of heart coherence. And inside this book, The Quantum Being, she got some really cool imagery of like a like the the fields that are around you, the way you interact with those fields, and especially like the coherence of the heart, which I gotta check out the institute you're speaking of. But you know, it's if we take it all the way back to language, like there's so much in the lexicon of like, listen to your heart, follow your heart. And when you start talking about heart coherence, that adds like a real tangible part to it, doesn't it? Yeah. That's science, right? When, when we love science, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it just proves it. It's not right. nothing, something, you know, philosophical at this point anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. It, to me, it's beginning. I think we're beginning to bridge the gap or maybe just return to the idea that science and spirituality are part and parcel, right? Like they're the same side or they're opposite sides of the same coin. What's your take on the, the relationship between spirit and science? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I think so much of spirituality has these, you know, modalities and techniques that we knew to be effective, but no way to prove it. And then science, when I think in the beginning of it was like, nope. This is like so different. No, we need, but we didn't have the mechanisms to prove it. That was it. We didn't have the right. tools. And now we have the tools. Like we have EEG scans, which didn't exist a hundred years ago. Uh, we do today. So now we can say, oh, actually you do, something does shift in your brain. Now we can measure neuroplasticity. We can mm. see the integration of the hemispheres of the brain. We measure heart currents. We can see blood pressure drop through meditation. There's all of these different mechanisms of measuring. And I think as science continues to evolve and our ability to measure and and you know see the efficacy of things cha- continues to evolve we'll see more and more how th- how you know modalities from ancient roots are actually like viable and true but having said that i think there's also a lot of like dogma that's often wrapped mm-hmm. up in spirituality there are still tools that don't work um you know some of it is just um the placebo effect which is true in medicine as well you know a lot of medicine is placebo but the same thing is spirituality so i think having science is really important and critical for us to know what is the like most effective and it'll become more apparent as we evolve in our technology yeah i think we're gonna find out that there's a real big bridge between spirituality and placebos you know i think there's there's like a real like we don't understand it we, we might as well call it magic you know I wanna, i'm gonna there's a few comments here i want to read as we're as we're going oh, through sure. that want to speak out to us so shout out to jenna jenna we love you she got a great album out right now jenna longmire says walking between the worlds yes energy is everything shout out from mark davis over here mark davis the connector hi george and supriya nice to see you both hello from on niagara falls and then we have Jenna again says, I love hearing about you talk about the timeline, jumping or parallel lives. Maybe we could talk. I want to jump back into that for a moment. There was a while back, Supri, I remember having a few years ago, I remember having like this profound thing that happened to me. I, I was at work one day 
and my my phone started blowing up like just blowing up off the hook and i'm like what is this and i was driving so i couldn't really pick it up and it was a strange number so i was like well, maybe it's a marketer but it just like call hang up call hang up and i'm like okay this is clearly something and then i looked down again and it was my wife my wife was calling me and she's like george she's like are you are you driving i'm like yeah and i pulled over and she's like is there something you want to tell me and i'm like oh my god uh and i'm thinking it's like my wife i'm just about to tell her i'm like no, I don't, I've got nothing to hide, love. I, what, is everything okay? And she goes, the FBI showed up at the door. They want to talk to you. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> me? And she's like, yeah, they just left here. They said that they can't tell me what's happening, but they really need to talk to you. And, you know, they're they're concerned at some of the things you're doing. I'm like, okay. <laughs> what the fuck are they talking about? Like, I'm trying to rack my brain. I'm like, man, because I bought some weed. And I'm like, they're going to care about if I bought some weed. Yeah. Like, I just started thinking about these silly things. And I'm like, man, I got nothing to hide. So then those guys call me. As I'm thinking about them, these guys call me up. I'm like, Mr. Monty, we got to meet you. We're going to come to your work. I'm like, that's a horrible idea. Do not come to my work. We're not going to meet there. Let's meet over here at this other place. And so they, we meet over at, at uh, the UH campus. And they show up. And you know, I'm, I'm watching them show up. And I'm like, I start sizing them up. I'm like, dude, they're fully younger than me. Like, who are you? They don't like FBI agents. Who are these guys? So they come over to me and they're they're kind of giving me the stern look and they hand me this binder. And they're like, could you take a look at these individuals inside this binder, Mr. Monty? So I open it up. I'm like, I don't I don't know, I don't like, dude, I don't know any of these people. It's like these strange looking people. And I'm like, and then like as I'm looking through the binder, I look up at them and like they're like watching me. And now I'm like, are they just watching me watch this binder? I start <laughs> tripping out of my mind, right? I got all these crazy yeah. questions. And so I hand it back to them and I'm like, man, I don't know any of these people. What's this all about? And they're like, well, maybe you can explain to us how this guy has your license. And I'm like, hmm. I look at him again. I'm like, oh, you know what? I got pickpocketed at the mall like six months ago. And I just saw all the air come out of him. They're like, damn it, you know. <laughs> and like, they thought they had some big criminal on their case. And I was yeah. like, oh. And so long story longer, I come home that night and I tell my wife what happened. It was kind of a, you know, a, 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 just a misappropriation of, of who it was. And at that moment, I remember thinking that night, like, what if I was like, what, what did the first off, what do those guys think I was doing? And second off, what if I was the guy that they thought I was? What if I was this mastermind criminal? What would I do? And I lived in that world, Supriya, for like a few hours. I was like, I just became this international mastermind. I started thinking about all these things that I would do. And I felt like I was that person. And then all of a sudden it was this shift in my mind. It's like, you could be. You could be that person if you wanted to. You just lived that life for yep. two hours and you lived it. Why not? And from that point forward, I felt like there was this neuroplastic change that happened in my life. Not to be a criminal or not to be that, but the ability to become who I wanted to be. And I've been able to draw back on that, you know, on that instance to be like, yeah, I can change. The world is inviting me to become whoever I want to be if I'm willing to believe I'm that person. And I think that that speaks to the idea of parallel universes. It yes. speaks to the idea of jumping between different realms like that. Thanks for letting me share that story. Is that a little crazy or what do you think? No, that's beautiful. <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah. And you've had like a direct experience. So now you know yeah. you can do that again. Um, yes. It, for you, it seems like having this experience with other people like creates that anchor for you and yeah. being able to change your brain. So if you wanted to in the future um, become somebody else, you could recreate that, but not, you know, not the FBI and and and, the, and all of that, but whatever yeah. it is that you want it to, to be. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how those stories go because you start looking back on those stories and you realize that 
the the circumstances through which you created a story to change you had certain powerful anchors. And you're right. It was being out in public. It was an authority figure. There's all these, you know, um, archetypes that were in there and elements that allowed me to have that shift. And then when you start thinking about the big picture, you're like, oh, I'm beginning to understand how my mind works. Yeah. I need these things in my mind, or I need to conquer these things, or I have this problem with authority, or I have this weird relationship with these things, and they're playing out in your life. It's kind of magical and wonderful to think about, right? It's it's amazing. <laughs> yes. It's like the best playground. <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, it's um, I'm also curious with your your journey spans marketing, marketing, journalism, military service. How do these diverse experiences converge in shaping your unique approach to unlocking the potential of executives and entrepreneurs? Hmm. I think it's twofold. One is there's that all of the stuff that happens in the brain and the body to change the, right. that for people, which changes their reactions, changes mm-hmm. their behavior, behavioral output. So then they have different results. But also on the business side, I have real world business experience scaling both, you know, Fortune 500 companies as well as small mm-hmm. businesses. So that's also there because um, people need, you know, business leaders need help with both navigating both parts of it. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic. And I'm curious how, you know, being in the military, I think that you become familiar with the flight or fight syndrome. Like if you find yourself in this, maybe it's another dimension, you know, maybe it's a different world in which your sense of awareness is heightened at a level that it's not in the business world. Like, is that, su- is there something you're able to bring back from that world and apply it to the other worlds in which you work? Oh yeah. I'll, I, constantly, constantly. <laughs> There's just so much. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, in the military, you know, what we there's a there's an acronym called VUCA. I don't know if you've heard of it. I can't remember like all what all the letters mean, but basically, it's volatile, like ambiguous, complex. Uh, that's that's the combat environment, right? Because it's things are changing all the time. You don't know right. warfare changes, especially when I was in Iraq. It switched to urban warfare, warfare from traditional warfare. So the military as a whole was like, what do we do strategically? Like, how do we fight the enemy who are now like going into houses and civilian homes and like going to a window and then doing things from there? Like, how do we fight back without hurting innocent civilians? Like that's an example of how warfare changed like in, in my own direct experience. Um, you know, things are always different and complicated. And the world maybe was the same, like the world at large was to a certain extent that way. But today, certainly with rapid technology, with more and more globalism, like those two things aren't going to stop. Right. Um, th- that VUCA environment is occurring more and more for us. So I think those um, things that help soldiers become more resilient and able to navigate those environments is critical for business leaders today. And in all of the ways, both from becoming personal leadership, being able to influence those around you. Like, how do you get an 18 year old to like be willing to die? <laughs> like, that's not an easy task. Like, that, that's that's the definition of a soldier, mm. right? Like you have to be willing to give up your life. That's what you're signing up for. That is the ultimate sacrifice to ask somebody to make. So that's a high level of persuasion. Um, not saying that you need to do that in the business world to that degree, but still, how do you influence people to do things they might not want to do, right? How do you see, get them to, you know, buy into the greater good as an example mm-hmm. of influence. But again, that resilience within yourself, the ability to adapt to changing environments, especially like today with AI, it changes like yeah. 
every month. There's a new feature in ChatGPT and like <laughs> new apps are being created, right? Constantly. It's like, how, how do I keep up with it all? How do I have all of this um, information overload, cognitive load, um, this overwhelming experiences, but not be overwhelmed and still be able to make really smart decisions and have clear, you know, dis decision making throughout it all. Those are some wow. examples. Thank you. That's it's it's wonderful. And it brings up it brings up an interesting thought for me that you know this idea of persuasion. Like how do like here's here's an interesting question. If a crime fighter fights crime and a firefighter fights fires, what does a freedom fighter fight? Yeah, I think morally that's <laughs> a, that's a whole other rabbit hole. It's gonna create a lot of division. I think if we go down that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't help but think about persuasion because I love it. Like I, I see it. Like yeah. I, I, I read Caldini. I read, you know, the 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 art of propaganda and persuasion. And you know, on some level, I have such an affinity for language. And, and I think if you have an affinity for language, you can't help but be attracted to the idea of persuasion on some level. Yeah. But when when you talk about being in military service and then coming back and applying some of these things to the world of business. You know, on some levels, a young soldier that's willing to give up everything and die for what they believe in is a lot like a founder of a company. Yeah, founder of a they, company is willing. Go ahead. I was going to clarify. Most of the time, the soldier doesn't believe in it. They're just willing to do it, which, <laughs> okay, which is another layer. <laughs> oh, that's, I think therein lies the PTSD, right? Like, yes, if, if, and moral right? injury. Yeah. <sighs> Yes. Like, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Like, it kind of makes me want to cry. It makes me goosebumps a little bit. Like, that, I think we nailed it on the head. The willing to do it, but ha ha say it again. Not willing to do it, but not believing in it. Is that what you said? Yeah. Like, in my case, I didn't believe in the Iraq war when I was there, but I was still willing to die. And we were bombed a lot. And that could have occurred. Like, I saw people die around me not to you know get too graphic or like trigger warning here yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and but i believed in my comrades i believed in their safety mm. and i still believe to a certain extent that we were I, I saw the good that we were doing i saw the bad that we were doing but i also saw the good that we were doing so a part of me was like yes i'm willing to like if if i needed to if it occurred i'm not going to create it but if it happens it happens like it's okay Maybe it's necessary for you know the same way in which we stop habits in our life is becoming aware that they're destructive to us. Maybe so too on a global level when so many people are finding themselves in a situation where they're willing to do something but they don't want to do it. Maybe that's part of the awareness of change. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think having empathy for others. If I could share a story from Please, Iraq. please do. Yeah, I would love that. So – I did feel a lot of guilt while I was there that um, ate me out, ate me up from the inside. And I didn't know what to do with it because I started feeling that shortly after arriving in country and I had a 15 month deployment. So like, I think like month two, it was like really hard and like, I wanted to leave. Mm. I was like, I still have 13 months left. <laughs> like, there's, there's no way to like leave right. Right. Uh, unless you, you know, get kicked out, which is not a, a good thing to have on your record, even as a civilian, right. like it's, it's just, life is not going to be pretty for you if that occurs. So I decided what I, I was like, well, how do I make this better for myself? So I decided to volunteer. Um, I used to work for the U.S. Embassy at the time in Baghdad. And because of that, I had a lot of connections. And so they, I basically got a letter from a, a high-level doctor who worked at the embassy to get me a volunteer position at a hospital. 
which typically you need to be like a trained medic to do. Like you have to have the, the training, which I didn't have. <laughs> but I was like, I just need to do something. And, and they agreed. They wanted to help right. me. So I went I went to the hospital and started volunteering. And at the time, I was learning Arabic. And I speak, I love languages as well, mm-hmm. uh, obviously. <laughs> Um, so I worked specifically in the ICU, the intensive care um, unit for um, local nationals. So the hospital primarily served soldiers who are coming, you know, injured, but I worked in, in the Iraqi side. And um, during the time, for the majority of it, I was treating either uh, Iraqi soldiers that had come in or Iraqi civilian casualties. But one day we had a terrorist that come, came in that didn't uh, was a suicide bomber who had, you know, partially failed. So he was still alive. And according to Geneva conventions, which is the international law, we must all abide by, um, we had to treat him. It was, it's the law. So we did treat him. He was obviously in a separate section with a a police officer and MP and, you know, it was a different, um, kind of environment we, you know, set up in his room. We did give him medical care in the same way. And the day that I was there, I was um, normally, I didn't think that me being like a volunteer position in, in this manner would go trade him, but uh, my supervisor asked me to do it. So I said, okay. And I was very, very frightened to go into that room because I thought this man is going to memorize what I look like and then go kill me because that's what terrorists do. And it was not unheard of. It's actually very common for our translators who work there to be victims of terrorist attacks, right? They are taking their own risk by helping the United States military. And because I looked, I had my my hair was not uh, colored at that time. It was it was my natural black color, and because I spoke Arabic, people often assumed I was of Arabic descent, right? Because of just the my mannerisms right. at the time. But that okay, this guy's gonna think that I'm uh, like a local person who's betraying their people, and he's gonna remember. And, and you have a name tap name tag on your uniform. Right. He's gonna know my name. You know, I, I just like like all of these things in my brain were going on. Like I'm just scared. He's gonna he's gonna kill me. Like I'm gonna die. But I have to do this because it's what I signed up for. When I first walked into the room, I looked down at the ground. I couldn't even like, like look up because again, I I had so much trepidation. I cannot tell you. It's probably the most fearful moment of my life was, was this day. Um, And then, but then I went around um, to the side of his bed. Like I was like walking, um, you know, around his bed and I went there and I looked up and I finally made eye contact with him. And when I made eye contact, I saw he was an incredibly old man. He must've been like 70 years old. And when he looked at me, we made eye contact. He began to cry. Like there was just, there was a tears, like just going down. It was just silent. There was no spoken words. And he just started crying. In that moment, I felt this deep level of compassion, empathy for him. And I was realized that he is who he is because of circumstances. I'm, I don't know the full complexity of his circumstances. I was like, maybe he got paid by a terrorist group um, to do this and he needed the money because he has no food for his family. I don't know. I don't know yeah. the full story. Maybe he really is, you know, believes in some ideology. I don't know. But in that moment, like something occurred that transcended both of our professions, for lack of a better word, yeah. and who we are. And it fundamentally changed me in that moment. And yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that story. It's, you know, I I think it's stories like that, that real life lived experience from individuals like you or me or just anybody out there who's had these. I I think that that's what translates into people understanding the greater good. You know, sometimes I just, I just, I just have a problem with that word, the greater good, because who gets to decide what the greater good is? But maybe there's something bigger than that. Maybe the greater good is the compassion between two people who are on opposite sides of the line. Maybe that's the greater good. 
I don't know what the greater good is, but I yeah. think we need to have hope because without hope like we would we would shrivel, right? Our soul would would shrivel. We need um, going back to love. We need love to survive. Mm. We know that if babies if they don't experience emotional right. touch and emotions, they do die. Like we need, I think we need hope, even if it's not real. We need it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Heart. Heart. Hey, buddy. Right when you said that, my cat rolls in over here. Imagine that. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm reminded of those studies. I think Harry Harlow had these monkeys and um, they took, they did some, they were really mean experiments, but they would take the monkeys away from the mom and put them with like a steel monkey and they, they got no love and those monkeys would end up suffering and dying. And I think that that speaks volumes to who we are. Like if we don't have love and that, that's probably a trigger for us. So many try to find love or are lonely. And so we end up doing these things that we think will get attention for us. And it's crazy to think about, but yeah, the idea of hope is a powerful one. It's 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 this idea that we're part of something bigger. And I think that takes us full circle back to, you know, the idea of, you know, profound experiences, whether it's jumping in different dimensions or whether it's language or moving between countries. This idea that we're part of something bigger than both of us. Like we're we're a divine spark of the world. What's your take on that? Like being a part of something bigger. Yeah, I think it goes back to what we're talking about, like this universal intelligence. I yeah. think I'm just a facet of it, right? right? Just like a human body is all of these cells. All of those cells are different and they have their own um, uh, micro intelligence, for lack of a better word, that can create, you know, um, like an organ, right, in the mm -hmm. body. But it's still, they all have the same DNA, right? They're still the same right. intelligence. So I think humans are the same way. We're all part of this broader intelligence in the entire universe, but we all within us are like the DNA. We still have that intelligence to its full capacity within us. Yeah. So we've touched on this a little bit, but this question goes into what we were talking about a little bit deeper. As a combat veteran leading teams across three continents, how has your military background influenced your coaching philosophy, particularly in fostering teamwork and cohesion within organizations? Hmm. Uh, I think there's two parts of that question. The first part is, has it influenced my coaching? And second is specifically with teamwork and cohesion. But the first part, I'm a very direct, uh, I'm like a no bullshit, very direct person in my coaching. Um, some people like, uh, I mean, all my clients like it, but I don't think it's for everybody, right? There are a lot of people who are much softer in their approach. And I believe in being soft and loving and heart coherence, everything we talked about, but I'm very direct. I'm very focused. I believe in like focused, rapid results. <laughs> so that's, the, that's the military part of me like coming out in my coaching style, no matter like what I do, that's always there. As far as teamwork and cohesion, um, there's a lot. Um, so I, you know, team morale is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And creating um, inspiration is something that um, I think is important that business leaders don't always put a focus on. That's a big part of creating team cohesion, creating bonding, creating trust between members of the group, between um, hierarchy levels of hierarchy, like whether okay. it's yourself or different layers of management that exist. Um, that you know, there's different methods to do that, both at a subconscious level through the way you speak, the way you communicate, as well as very like real world tactical ways of doing it, like various activities you can do um, and, you know, types of meetings you can have and, and whatnot. So that's how it comes out. It's interesting. I Has been, has your experience in life taught you that there's a problem with hierarchies? No, <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably not what you're expecting. <laughs> <laughs> 
Can you expand on that? I know it's kind of a nebulous question, but I, I think it's a fun one. And I'm curious to get well, your thoughts. Maybe you can expand on it. Well, the concept of leadership inherently means there's hierarchy. There's mm -hmm. a leader in charge. Right. And I believe we need leadership in order to make things happen. So I think that's why. If we didn't need leadership, then, then yeah, we wouldn't need hierarchy. But fundamentally, there needs to be someone that can make decisions, that can, you know, um, great strategy, um, can help lead people um, to different ways of thinking and being. Um, I think part of it is also most people don't have the desire or capacity to go beyond survival mode mm. often. So leaders do, they go beyond survival mode. They're willing to expand who they are in, in many, many ways to then help people go beyond that mode that they're in. Again, whether it's just purely business or, or life or in any capacity. So leadership is critical to progress. And if you have leaders, you need hierarchy. Yeah, there's lots of masks of leadership that, that you can see play out through through your own life through my like people see leadership and through different lenses through different parts of their life and I'm wondering who do you see as a leader and why I see lots of people as leaders <laughs> can you give us some examples of them uh people you know honestly the people that inspire me the most are um, business owners of like small and medium there aren't mm -hmm. in like in, in big business because it's so much harder for them to do mm -hmm. it. There's um, so much more effort, so much more sludge to go through, both inside of yourself and and in the business world and market forces. Your you know your your people that you're leading, etc. So to me, that's who inspires me the most. But certainly, you know, people who have been like leaders at a global level, both historically in the past and and today. Um, I'm especially inspired by I think female leaders uh, mm. because they had a especially. Today and in the past, people had to fight through so much <laughs> to <laughs> to accomplish what they did. Um, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see people on the entrepreneurial journey. You know, especially you know, you start you start looking at what kind of a person is willing to walk away from a life of normalcy, whatever that means, or a life that's somewhat comfortable, and tell their partner or their kids, like, "Hey, I'm going to be." mentally gone for a while i'm going to focus on this dream that i have for everybody like that's a tough conversation to have with people you love hey just excuse me for a minute while i go work on this dream that's gonna make us all better and your yeah. loved one's like what the fuck are you talking about like what about this dream that we have right here pal what about right. this like, it's working great why are you breaking it? yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> right and you can see like you start when you start digging down into like reading people's stories that have made it to a certain level you know, the phrase you can't serve two masters comes to mind. And, and there's there's a trail of broken relationships. There's a trail of broken relationships, whether it's a father or a mother or a husband or a wife, you know, like on some level, do you have to leave behind everything in order to begin an idea that will change the world as an entrepreneur? I think it depends on how big your dream is. You know, when I study people point. who are like, like Elon Musk, for example, or Bill, you know, people who are like the, at a, right. a very, very high level of entrepreneurship and running many, many companies, right. they have sacrificed more than I would yep. say like a small business owner, uh, because they're so committed to that vision, you know, so committed to, to doing it and being it all the time that they sacrifice their relationships. But I think for the, 
average entrepreneur who is not that way. No, I don't. I don't think that's required. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think some of it does stem from maybe broken relationships in your past. What I find interesting is most entrepreneurs that I've worked with, they're trying to prove something. Yeah, mm. you know, maybe there's maybe they came from poverty. Maybe they had a parent who was very hard on them. It's always something they're trying to prove something and there's some like broken relationship um, that that lies in their past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can totally see it. I have a, a family member that investigates corporate security fraud and it's it's interesting to be abreast of some of the things that happen there and some of the the stories that that may or may not be true that are alleged to be true like these people that have built up like a huge, corporation and then something goes awry and money gets taken here they're like it's just the stories that are that happen when someone puts their life on the line to create something it's it's fascinating to think of and I, I think that all of us who find themselves on that journey can find empathy with people who try their best to create something and then has it fail on a level like your heart yeah. goes out to them right like do they put everything yeah. on the line and then that happened no yeah I know, but failure is part of the process. It is. It yeah, is. And, you, and I think once you can embrace it, and, and most people can't embrace it, right? That's what makes entrepreneurs entrepreneurs because they're willing right. to embrace failure and know it's just part of the journey. Right. A lot of people say that maybe that's not even the right word for it, right? Maybe it's like feedback. You know, you, you, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I heard. I heard somebody say uh, the way they put it is like, you know, when your kid's young you don't give up on them walking. Like they're going to, how long is it going to take for them to walk? As long as it takes, they're going to get up and they're going to fall and get up and they're going to fall, but they're going to keep trying until they walk. You know, they said that the same thing is true with all of us. If like we would just continue to get up and keep trying, like we would get it. And I, I believe that I, I wish people had that same sort of drive and fortitude to be that we had when we were young. Like, whether you're going to tie your shoe or whether you're going to learn to walk, like you, you can do it. I think everybody can be better if they just dig down or they have someone to maybe push them a little bit to become that person. I think that you do that. So I think you do that for your people is like you provide them with a form of no bullshit can do like get up and do it. You come on. You know, I think that that's yeah. something that you do for people. I, I love it. Is that, is that something that was done for you or where does that come from? Mm, so my origin story is as I had, <laughs> A very hard life as a child right. so i also feel like i have to prove myself yeah right I, yeah i had people that were hard on me uh but you know it's made me who i am and um everything is it has its pros and cons so i'm grateful for it but definitely in the military that was uh, obviously reinforced right um right. you have from the beginning of a drill sergeant yelling and screaming at you if you don't do something you better drop and do like 50 push-ups <laughs> and whether you like it or not what you know and you have to run really fast even if, you, if it means you have to walk the whole way you're gonna walk those five miles even if you can't you know keep up with everybody no matter what you just do it like there's there's no the quitting is not an option <laughs> so that is uh, a part of i think my uh development you know up until like i was 25 like what's that's when i left the military which is mm -hmm. when your brain stops forming itself uh, aside from neuroplasticity so my own neural pathways yes um mimic that i think part of also what you're describing you know when we're children we we don't quit right tying our right. shoes or walking etc but part of it is because we see everyone around us doing it 
Mm. And, and I think as children get older, they do start quitting on themselves with different things. I see mm. with my own daughter who's eight, that, like there's times when things get harsh. She's like, well, I'm not going to do that because the other kids in class don't necessarily do that. Only like some kids do that. Like they're the ones who are like reading extra or doing their math longer, you know, whatever it, the tasks are. And I, and part of it is her peer group. When she was younger, it wasn't that way because the peer group was doing the same thing. And I think as we get older and older, the peer groups that are doing the harder things shrink. So I think it is important as entrepreneurs to always be in a community of other entrepreneurs who are also, mm -hmm. because if you surround yourself with people that are doing the same thing, then, then it feeds your mind like, oh, I should do this too. Like there's an element of peer pressure. Yeah. What's that old, that saying that you are the amalgamation of the four people closest to you. And yes. it makes sense. Like the same way you said it with your daughter, like which group are they in, you know, yeah. who are they with and what is possible and who wants to be around them. It's, it's amazing to see that and from that angle like that. Thanks for, for sharing that. Yeah. So you have mastered the three levels of communication, unconscious communication with the self, conscious communication with others, and collective conscious communication within group dynamics. Can you share a transformative moment where understanding these levels made a significant impact on a client's journey? Oh, yeah, all of it. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, I think the first level is unconscious communication. So, you know, typically when we even think or thinking at a conscious level, and when mm -hmm. we communicate, we're communicating on a conscious level, you know, uh, whether that's like fast thinking or slow thinking, it occurs prior to us speaking. So what I on that unconscious part, I teach clients to communicate with themselves at an unconscious level. And there's different, you know, like, like hypnosis is a great example of that. There's lots of modalities and techniques, but when you're in a state of hypnosis, you're able to tap into the unconscious mind. Meditation is another example. Then you're able to like have your conscious unconscious mind communicate with each other so that's part of it and that's where the belief formation and emotions and all of that stuff come into play so whenever i work with clients they're able to let go of really really deep and big things by mastering unconscious communication with themselves which again has like mm. a trickle effect in their life in in huge ways maybe you're afraid of something right like yeah. fear and then if you can let go of that if you can identify where it is in your unconscious mind and, and then release and let go of it then it doesn't stop you any from doing whatever it is that you need to, to do to create success so that's the unconscious part the conscious communication with, with another being, um, a lot of that's influence and persuasion, right? When you're with another person, you need to step into that um, level. Um, so we have something called mirror neurons in our brain. Are you familiar with mirror neurons? I am. Yeah. But yes. maybe, for the, maybe you can explain it for everybody, though. Sure. Um, so mirror neurons is something that um, has developed through evolution in our brains to help us identify who's a friend and who's an enemy. And initially, like, you know, millions of years ago it was a survival thing we would know just just by like quickly seeing somebody like are they of our tribe essentially are they of our group of people they're not going to kill us so yeah they're a friend we can hang out with them or no we need to like bash them with our sticks or whatever it was <laughs> right <laughs> um, yep. and um that has evolved and the, the mirror neuron still is in our brain today so when we see somebody who is similar to us it actually creates unconscious bias so mirror neuron has mm -hmm. a downside that is something to you know counteract if anybody who wants to be you know evolved in that perspective but also you can uh, work it to your advantage if somebody is similar to you then they want to like you they want to trust you they want to be your friend it creates more influence so there's ways with body language and voice and all of that to then be like somebody else mm -hmm. right at a subconscious level so that's that subconscious part and there's a lot there's like many many layers like literally and figuratively to this but that's it's really the dynamics of mirror, mirror neurons at the collective conscious level now you're you know beyond one person and you still need to 
create both influence and persuasion in a group. And you also need to get that group to work with each other. So there's many, many elements to it. And science shows us that collective consciousness is a very real, very real thing. I think your cat is moving something behind yep. your chair. <laughs> um, you know, I referenced a, a meditation study earlier. You know, we've seen through, you know, like if, if a group of people are meditating, a war, uh, a crimes, crime rates of the entire city will go down. Mm -hmm. um, so that, so that, that group of people meditating affects the entire group. We see that we've also seen this in like various studies with animals If you know, one animal, uh, like learns, uh, something, then the group of animals, like in that study will then like automatically learn it, even though they weren't directly taught that technique of whatever it was. So there is a collect, so we know through science collective consciousness is there. So part of my work is helping people learn about that collective consciousness, both through their own direct experience of tapping into that energetic space. And then again, through influence of multiple people. I'm reminded of the hundred monkeys. Yeah. Like hundred, right. Yes. <laughs> I was yes. just reading yes. that yesterday. <laughs> I know it's a fascinating study. <laughs> yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. For those that may not know, and correct me if I'm wrong, I might get this wrong, but there was a, there was an Island. I think it was off the coast of Japan and these particular yes. sort of researchers went and they saw that this particular monkey was washing a potato or washing some fruit or something is the way I heard it. And it was, it was odd because it was like the only one doing it. And then they, they went to another Island and then all of a sudden they, I'm probably butchering it, but they noticed after a while, all the monkeys were doing it. So it was like this direct exchange of consciousness between a group of similar primates that didn't even know each other. Like there's clearly something going on there. Right. Yeah. And you know when you related to humans, that same idea, you can see like 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 inventions, like ideas yep. that get created, right? Like yep. one person has an idea, but at the same time, there's a whole other groups of people like all around the world that have the exact same idea at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. There's also an aspect aspect of of the hundredth monkey effect on humans. <laughs> how about the how about the uh, four minute mile? The same thing. Oh, it's impossible. No one will yes. ever do it. The one yeah. guy breaks it, and then everybody breaks it. You know. Mm -hmm. and, at yeah. some level, it, it speaks to the wonderful, magnificent mystery that is the human condition and like the idea that knowledge is there to be revealed to us. And if you just listen, you can receive the great idea. You can have the great invention. And by you, I mean all of us because you is just all of us, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, we're one and the same. If I, it's like be the change you want to see. I love that quote. It's like I know, and I've seen that in my own life. Like as I evolve, the world evolves around me. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It. I think it speaks to the, the idea of, you know, mirror neurons. If we just jump back to that for a moment, it's it's this. I sometimes it's so frustrating to see somebody that you thoroughly dislike doing something and then realize you dislike them because that's exactly what you do. Yep. You know, you're like, I hate, oh, yeah. I see what's happening. It's me that I don't like. You yeah. Know? That's the shadow, <laughs> right? That's, yep. that's the root of shadow yep. work. Yeah. Yep. It is. We got some people chiming in here. So I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to fire some things off here. Coming from the one and only Mr. Wizard. Thanks for hanging out with us, Ben. Perhaps same universe, a different story playing like a lightning strike or a river running through the land. I love the way you put that there, but the, the whole idea of jumping through parallel universes. Yes. What do you think? Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful um, analogy. It? Yes. It's yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't think awesome. it's a question, I don't think there's a question in there, but I, I love what he wrote. <laughs> it's very yeah. Boring. 
Yeah, he's got some great stuff going on. Ben, I gotta, I'm gonna reach out to you, man. I want to talk about a few things. Jenna Longmire, this is profound. Thomas Hutchison, fellow octopi, willing or programmed with conditioned responses. Love the dimensional talk about quantum thought or shifting. Willing or programmed? Yeah, both with conditional response. <laughs> yeah. So I think we are programmed unwillingly throughout our whole lives, starting mm. from birth, like, or actually from the womb. When we're in our mother's womb, we know that the emotions that the mother feels, the baby also feels. Right. What the mother eats affects the taste, taste buds of the baby when they're born. So the programming starts at the moment of, of inception, um, you know, starting from there. And then everything that we see, hear, and feel throughout our whole lives. Uh, so that's the uh, program part. And the willing yeah. part is when you recognize that that is occurring and you take control of it. Right. Then you consciously decide what you'll be programmed with through different you know, modalities and what you're willing to be deprogrammed by as well. Like going back to the example of Pavlov's dogs, right. well you said. could change that uh, stimuli and response right, in those dogs. It's just a matter of, of doing it. So in the same way, in our own mind and body, just a matter of undoing it or right. doing I think it. That, yeah, I think that the, the bridge there is awareness, right? The fact mm -hmm. that you have been conditioned, just knowing that allows you to break that conditioning. It's the thing we were talking about, like being aware of something. Oh, I see what happened. That whistle makes me salivate. You know what? Get yes. that guy's whistle out of here, man. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or change it so the whistle no longer does it. Yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. Or really mess with them. Be like, every time you blow that whistle, I'm going to bite you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's a better one. Clint Kyle's... Clint Kyle's awesome podcaster, amazing human being. Great conversation, folks. You can think on this comment later, reflecting on a previous topic. In his book, Sacred Knowledge, psychedelic researcher Dr. Bill Richards shares a beautiful story about his late wife. As a little German girl, she survived the bombing of Dresden. As an adult nurse, she had the experience of attending to the needs of a dying elderly pilot, who as a young man was one of the U.S. servicemen who dropped those uh -huh. bombs. Pretty, pretty amazing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. On some level, I, I think it speaks to the idea of, of timeline shifting. You know, we spoke about different dimensions, but time is an aspect of that too. I, I've had plenty of experiences where I felt like I've lived an entire lifetime and I've got to go back and live through choices that I've made or that I should have made or that I thought I should have made and like see how it plays out. There's some really interesting states we can find ourselves in, maybe yeah. through meditation, maybe through psychedelics, maybe through being quiet or being in the right areas, but you can really begin to experience the illusion of time in different ways. What do you think? Yeah, I would add to that. Also, I think if you, in your, if you think back to a time that's triggering for you and mm -hmm. then sort of like see that event through, you know, your now current self right. and then try to find like, what is a lesson that is there for you to make sure it's not a trigger anymore, then I feel you just step into a different timeline. Because now mm -hmm. your mind has changed, right? The thing is no yeah. longer a trigger. And now you're in this reality where it never occurred in that way. Yeah. I think that's time traveling. I think you yes. can go back in time, right? Like, and that's yeah. how you do it. That's a thank you for putting it that way. It's, it's, and I think that this is, you know, I know that the world of science doesn't like woo woo, but it's a great way for people to help overcome tragedies in the past is the idea of time traveling. And I think it says it in a way that makes it like, digestible like look today we're going to come and we'll do some time traveling we're going to go back to the very time when that thing happened to you we're going to fix it you're going to change 
I'm going to give you the option of changing what happened to you. Because once you change the meaning of that event, then you exactly. would change all the events moving forward, right? Like yes. it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of beautiful. Like to know that yeah. you're capable of going back and changing the past, even though they say you can't science says you can't change the past, but I think you can, right? You think you can. I, from not from a scientific perspective, but from like a metaphysical or spiritual, yeah, the only moment is now, right? Everything else is past, present, parallel reality. The only moment is now. And that all, all that matters is the moment of now, really. Even let, right. let's, let's just say you couldn't change the past. Does it matter? Like as long as you <laughs> believe you can and you've changed it in your mind, like that's all that matters, right? Yeah. I focus on the output. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's well said. I, you know, it, I think a lot of people began to see the shift when Eckhart Tolle's the first time they read Eckhart Tolle's book, the power of now, right? Like yeah. that for me was like the beginning of understanding, Oh, that's all, that's all there is actually, you know, and yes. depression is being trapped in the past. Anxiety is being trapped in the future, but right now currently having an amazing conversation with an amazing person. We're talking to other people here. Like now is what matters. How do you feel right now? Like in the moment you start slipping out of that is the minute the problems start fading in on some yep. level. Exactly. And then going back to that observer effect, right? Yeah. Right now, what your observations are right now and everything behind your eyes, like your brain, you know, your, what you're seeing, hearing, and feeling at like a neural level, which mm -hmm. is the observation of now, that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> that's creating your outcomes. <laughs> yeah. Where, where do you think the idea of uncertainty fits in here? Like a lot of people, myself included, and a lot of people I know, that's where things start really getting, they kind of start going sideways is this concept of uncertainty. Like you can't be certain, but we really want that certainty sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I agree. I think certainty is important to prove things to yourself. And I think it starts with doing small things, whatever mm -hmm. it is you're trying to become certain of, you can always do it in a small way and then right. build up build up from there. And then the certainty just becomes bigger. And then you're like, okay, it's undeniable. It's unquestionable. Yeah. That's a great way to do it. It's, and it's, you can chunk it down into digestible moments. Like I'm sure I can have a cup of coffee right now. I'm sure I can tell this person I love them and I'm sure I can do these things. And then all of a sudden, you know, that you begin manifesting more things into your life and it becomes a pattern. You know, maybe yeah. we should talk a little bit about patterns, you know, as what are some effective techniques that you use with people to disrupt negative patterns? Uh, a plethora of techniques. It depends on the pattern itself, right? Ooh. So, uh, yeah. Um, so with, with NLP, like so one of the things we talk about is is, is timeline, uh, mm -hmm. which we sort of alluded to earlier of like going back to this choice points, you know, in, mm -hmm. in our past. And if you can, that is a way to disrupt a pattern of, of emotions as well as beliefs that were formed. Because mm -hmm. any emotion, this is a concept of gestalt, right? Um, I don't know if you're familiar with gestalt psychology or, or that world, but for the audience here at large, um, gestalt psychology comes from a man named gestalt who's a psychologist. And he discovered that any emotional response we have today is actually not because of what's happening today. It occurred in the past. It's like layers, right? It's the analogy that's often used is pearls on a string. So if you can get rid of the pearl from the past, the entire necklace just falls out. So that's your emotions. Those are called your gestalts. You have like layers of that same emotion building over time. So with one of the techniques that's timeline is we go back to the past, we find that root cause of that moment of when that emotion was first created or the belief that was first created, get rid of it, and then the rest of it falls away. So, so your response today and moving forward will no longer be in the same way. Can that be applied to like generational trauma as well? Yes. Yes. And that, that's a really good, um, 
good good a question that you asked because that's very common. So much of what we have in in our psyche is not our own. It is conditioned mm. pre pre you know uh, being in the womb, and we know from science that um, trauma can be passed down. 14 generations. Wow. It's, it's been proven. We can see that like um, the children of Holocaust survivors have PTSD today in the same way their uh, mm. grandparents did. Um, so again, science shows it like the same stimuli response situation. Um, that's just one you know famous example of a study that was done, but there's been lots of studies done that it's actually passed down at the DNA level, like generation. And according to the world of spirituality, it's further back than that, right? But science has proven 14 generations. That's pretty compelling. So yes, you can resolve it through, you know, various techniques like the timeline. Yeah. In some ways I find it both dangerous and beautiful to see the way that that generational trauma plays out. Like on some level, the thing that happened to you, if it goes unresolved, there's a very good potential that you'll become the person that did the thing that hurt you. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. it's really dangerous, but on some level, the pattern of what is possible to be passed down for generations is beautiful, not because of the abuse, but because there's, there's generational love that's could pass down as well. We talk about generational trauma, but the generational beauty that gets passed down in patterns is something that people don't talk enough about. I absolutely agree. <laughs> yes, yes. There's so much wisdom that gets passed down, right? Um, you know what I, I like in my own family, like intuition has been passed down. I can see it very clearly, like all the women in my family, and I see this in, in a lot of other people. Like intuition is often like very strong with different, you know, uh, members of the family, like going back. There's yeah. other things too, but it's like that's a very powerful like tool to have. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I mean, you you hear it in folk tales or you hear it in stories or in science fiction too, I see quite a bit of it is like a woman's intuition. Like that, that's yep. a, that's a thing, you know, because it's, it it's been sacred for so long and yeah. Yeah. Old matriarch. Yeah. Like there's the, the emblem of the, the, the earth goddess from Starbucks. Like that, there it is embodied right there. You know what I mean? It's yeah. in all this. We should talk about symbolism. Super. I love the idea of symbolism and there's so for me, it's the yin and yang sign that's moving, like the spot of order and chaos, and chaos and order, and the way it, it's constantly turning. And that's one of my favorite symbols. And I think I like that symbol so much because it speaks to me in my life and the the, the way my family's been. And, and it just it just speaks to me on that level. What is a symbol that you find speaks to you? And what are your thoughts on symbolism? I think symbolism is very powerful. It's how our brain thinks, right? Um, going back to the yeah. brain science, uh, we all, uh, and everyone has their, I think, own personal relationship to symbolism, but also like a collective relationship to symbols as well. It's very like Jung, yeah. right? Like he talks yeah. about that a lot in his work. Um, but to answer your question for me specifically, um, you know, um, I, I don't study a lot of into like totems or like power animals, like from the Native American shamanic mm -hmm. culture, but I have noted, but in my own life, I have been drawn to certain animals at a symbolic level and i've and whenever i have sort of just like been with that energy interesting things occur in my life so that's interesting for me at a symbolic level and then dreams uh, mm. again i think it's very personal there's all these like dream dictionaries but that's so yeah. generic so i do try to be aware of the symbols that are in my dreams and then try to interpret them when i wake up like what is the the deeper meaning behind this that i'm seeing um, in my dream and then it's always an interesting message for me um, that i can you know rely on to shape my day you keep a dream journal 
I don't. Um, I just, I just, just when I wake up, I just reflect on it, you know, for right. five or ten minutes. But it's it's better to 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 keep a dream journal so you can um, make a habit of remembering it. I used to keep a dream journal uh, when I wasn't able to remember my dreams, and now mm -hmm. I can. Maybe that's why I don't feel like I need to. I'm sure it would get stronger, but it's just not a a huge part of like what I do. Yeah, I keep yeah. saying I'm gonna have one. Like I always have. Like I'm similar in that. For me, halfway through my day, my dream will be triggered. Oh, yeah, I dreamt that thing. That's what it was. You know, I've, there's like this strange sort of shaking hand relationship with, oh. Yeah. I lost you there for a minute. There's like the same. Let me let me switch this back on. Okay. I think that's working now. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Now can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can okay, fantastic. I can. Yeah, I got all excited and I pulled out my, my ear. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't know. I love dreams. And I, I think that there may be a way in which you can strengthen that bridge if you were to use writing and, and underscore the dreams like that. But yeah, let me ask you this one here. So being awarded the Ad Color Award for exemplary leadership in DEI is a remarkable achievement. How do you infuse diversity, equity, and inclusion principles into your coaching strategies to create lasting cultural change within organizations? Mm, that's a great question. So first of all, it starts with a person, like letting go of the unconscious bias, right? We mm -hmm. talked about the mirror neurons, right? We talked about the influence part, but it also creates unconscious bias. So right. helping people um, dismantle that within themselves is really important. Um, uh, and I only work with leaders who are focused, like that's a part of their work, right? Is uh, making sure that DEI is, is always there. It's not something to be ignored um, because there's a lot of marginalized groups that need, you know, help and different um, types of attention in, in their workforce. You know, something simple like changing a job description. Like, mm -hmm. you know, um, there's so many studies that have been done that women will not apply for the same job that a man will, even if she's more qualified than a man when they read the same job description. So changing the language of it to be more open to female candidates. It's it's a small thing, but it's also a big thing, right? You're not like giving a handout, but you're just making it more approachable for a group of people that might not necessarily see themselves as a, as a great candidate for the job. So then there's those tactical aspects of it as well. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting topic. I, I see a lot of people talking about it today. And, and when I think about like DEI, or I think it's a necessary part of the world we're building. But I, th I think that, and I'm hopeful, I think the DEI will do this, but I think we got to change the idea of not only education, but we have to change the idea of, uh, of labor and work in order for all of us to work together. On yep. some level, I think DEI is becoming this wedge that's pushing everybody apart. Like it's not supposed to mm -hmm. be that. It's supposed to be this thing that brings all together. But the, I think Coming from the top, it's being used as a wedge to divide people. Would you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Can you tell me more on how you're seeing it divide people? Yeah. Like it seems that that on some level, the focus on particular groups mm. is like, you know, where you where you focus, where your focus goes, so your energy goes. And yeah. when you constantly say this group is this, this group is that, like even the groups that may be marginalized are competing for one spot now. It's like, wait a minute. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like, this is the big tent and we're all have different ideas and ways of life. And we're going to put those ideas together and we're going to move this thing forward. But it feels yeah. like it's being a wedge to push the people on the bottom against each other. That's, yeah. that's just my take. I don't know. 
Yeah, I can see what you're saying. And um, I agree uh, to a certain extent on that. I think creating harmony is more important. Yes. Like focusing on a specific group. And I do think that uh, like white men get ignored in that process. Like I, I was just talking to a client yesterday who, who's a white male and it was a, and we were, and he was just opening up to me about all of the pressures he's facing as being the breadwinner in the family, as a man, you know, he has, a, he has a wife who works, but he's the primary breadwinner. And it was a very, you know, beautiful, intimate session. And we worked through a lot of stuff, but it's like, this is a group that doesn't get talked about, but he has a lot of you know things that are important uh, to him as a as a human being to his family to the community at large that is also important to address. Um, so I think I think there's two parts of it. Like let's not ignore other groups for the sake of one group because everyone yeah. is everyone is important and everyone has their own stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, for lack of a word. Um, and then also let's not work on separating a group and making them special in any way, whether it's positive or negative, and instead focus on harmony. Yeah, And I think also one more aspect is let's yeah. not repeat stories because then we just deepen that narrative. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it goes back to the idea of like neuroplasticity and NLP. Once you start giving, once you start giving, you know, I heard it, I heard it put this way one time and I thought it was a really beautiful way. It's like going to a ski resort and the first time you go up and you get fresh snow, right? And like all of a sudden you make this fresh track. And you're like, okay, that's the first time you do something. But as the day goes on, like that particular track gets super rooted and like it's super deep and all this snow, like that's how we think. And if all of a sudden, like your thought process is this deep root, it's very difficult to think outside of that deep root. Correct. And so once we start telling these stories, especially when we start amplifying on a level, that becomes a narrative for people to fall into instead of yes. just think their way through. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want to perpetuate negative stories that yeah. just continues to harm a group of people. Like it's yeah. not, it's not good to say that over and over again, in my opinion, like whatever the thing is. <laughs> that, you know, one thing that I'm really excited about in this time we live in, I think we live in a time of profound change in a time of profound change. When we look at the hero's journey, maybe the first threshold guardian, or it may be the, the call to the wild or something like that. But I think we're living in these times and, I'm so excited to talk to you today because I think we have an opportunity to begin to change the narrative on a level that is harmonious. What do you think? Yeah, that's, that's why I do what I do. <laughs> I know. <laughs> to change that like, you know, yeah. collective narrative as well as yeah. individual. Yeah, I think it's the most important work. I agree. So uh, to, <clears throat> to, to further this particular area or just to move forward a little bit, Having worked with global brands like Apple, Dropbox, Nissan, and the Wall Street Journal, how do you navigate the balance between tailoring strategies for large corporations and fostering meaningful connections with small businesses and their founders? Hmm. Well, it's different. So when I'm working in a corporate space, it's really coaching um, executive leaders. So their problems are mm. different. Um, their approach is different. Their environment, everything is it's, it's like two different worlds. Yeah. So it's not about balancing. It's just like just two different ways of operating, uh, both for myself as a coach and them in, in everything that they're doing. Yeah. Can you share a story from your coaching journey where overcoming subconscious blocks played a pivotal role in propelling a client toward peak performance and achieving their professional goals? 
Yeah, um, that's it's uh, it's a huge part of the the work that I do. All of my clients um, end up having peak performance. It's like right. the culmination of the different things that we're doing. Like, let's get rid of all this stuff. But yeah. then goal is obviously like outcomes in your business um, and in your life, whatever it is, but also peak performance. Like that's how you get there. Like without it, you're going to get burned out. Um, so <laughs> uh, all my clients live in, in flow states on a regular basis. Um, and that's how they're able to um, use energy over, um, you know, like grueling effort um, to accomplish mm. what they do. Uh, one example I'll give is that, you know, we often use willpower to get something done, but willpower yeah. is finite. Um, and the reason we use willpower is it's a conscious effort. So if you can change things at the subconscious level, you no longer need to rely on willpower to do whatever it is that needs to get done. So, you know, so the outcome specifically can be anywhere from creating more work-life balance, seeing your family more, increasing revenue in your business, um, you know, increasing market share for your business, going into a new area, developing new products, new services. Um, you know, the, the results are all, you know, like it's, it's, it's a large gamut of, of potential results that what I've just listed are actual results my clients have had. Uh, but that's where it starts. It's that, you know, no longer needing willpower because you're in those flow states. We talked a lot about like flow states and I love the way in which you've just used the word grueling effort and burnout, because I think that those two things are definitely, they go together on, on some level. Like, of course you're going to get burnout if you just have this grueling effort, like there's no reward in that. And you're not, getting close to your goals. It's, it's interesting. Maybe you could speak to the idea of burnout a little bit. Like it seems to happen in so many people that have a dream and then they, they get close to it and then things start happening and it doesn't work the way they want it to. And so they start trying to force things, but maybe you could speak to the idea of burnout a little bit. Sure. I think burnout uh, fundamentally com it comes back to so many of the things we're talking about. Like when there's all of this stuff in yeah. your brain that gets in the way, like these emotions, emotions have a lot of like they take a lot of energy from your body to feel yep. as, like literally like your heart rate will go up when you feel anxiety. Right. So then yep. your blood yep. is flowing more. Your body has to work harder to feel that emotion, which takes more energy. So you're going to get burned out. Right. That's an example of emotion. So managing your like emotional regulation is key to prevent burnout, um, changing the way you approach work. So changing those mental strategies, those cemented neural pathways of how you mm. approach a problem or a task, or even the way you interact in certain, you know, scenarios, scenarios. We all have these like mental shortcuts we've created right. throughout yeah. our lives. So identifying them and changing them to be different. So those are different things that can change energy in our body, which then prevents burnout. Um, and then the other part of it is uh, aligning the unconscious mind with the conscious mind. So at a subconscious mm -hmm. level, Right. <laughs> yeah, sort of like totally. yeah. So there, are t I'm sure we've all experienced, you know, activities in our life. It's like, this is fun. I can do it all day long. It's like so easy. I don't have to work hard at all. It just, yay. Yeah. Even if it is work. Right. right. Um, and other things like, man, this is so hard to do. Why is that? It's because your unconscious mind and your conscious mind are not aligned. There's something preventing alignment. So part of the work I do is like figuring out where that misalignment is between those two layers and then aligning it. So then you're like, oh, yay, this is fun when it was hard like yesterday. Yeah, I've seen that in my life. And I know other people that were that that misalignment, like the unconscious mind is just begins to knock so loud like you can't deny it and i think that happens to a lot of people like you you want hey it's going good it's going good but inside you're dying like i can't i can't do this anymore i'm dying inside you know and like something will happen you know you'll you'll act out in a certain way or a circumstance will arise and it'll force you out it's really hard like for me it was very hard to listen to that voice i didn't listen to it until it forced me out 
Is that a pattern in people or, or how can people begin to listen to that voice and become more aligned without having to get to the devastation at the end? Or is that just part of it? Um, I think trusting that voice, like going back mm. to like, um, having that certainty, like trusting it in small ways. And then you can begin to trust it. In big I think the heart is the path. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, like, you know, follow your heart. It's an adage for a reason. Um, there is, <laughs> there is some quiet voice that is wiser than your, than your ego. So listening yeah. to it and trusting it and then taking those small steps to trust it, which then, then you, your trust in it and it becomes bigger. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating to me. I've, you know, when you talk about heart coherence and we talk about energy and we talk about flow state, I've been, I've been reading not a whole lot, but I've spoken to some people about this idea of human design and the way in which these different charts are helping people see some of their strengths, some of their weaknesses, some of their patterns. Have you look at, looked at all into human design? Yeah, a little bit. So I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but um, right. I got a report of my human design, like yeah. the website, like this like 25 page report and who are you? But yeah. your, it, was, it was very helpful. Um, you know, I, um, like one of the things that said in the, I'm a manifester, like that's my type. Mm -hmm. So one of the things is you must say things before you do it. So I've experimented with that. Um, I think it, helps to a certain extent but one of the other things that said in there is like you're a trailblazer and you're not meant to like do what's the status quo and that is something that i don't think i would have um adopted philosophically for myself until i read that report so like being more um like owning that about my own work like be willing to say hey i'm doing something that's never been done before at, at scale um yeah. like the type of coaching that i do isn't traditional coaching you know for right. example right. the methodology that i use is, is not nor it is my own like melt of stuff and like owning it and but that was a big part of my report was that like you're supposed to be a trailblazer and at first i'm like oh that's a that's a big word like <laughs> right <laughs> but let, let me just do it and um my success has come as a direct result of that instead of like copying what was done before by others so i i think human design is is very interesting it has been yeah. beneficial for me in my own life but i'm no way an expert in it yeah, nor am I, but I've spoken to some people that are beginning to use it like in human resources. And it's okay. interesting to see the way in which they, uh, they were showing me like, I, I had a, I was looking at my chart and I was checking some things out. And then they showed me a relationship chart between someone else. And it seemed at the very least, like I thought it was really interesting, but it seems that it could be a very valuable tool for introspection, no matter how you looked at it or what you thought about it. Like just reading into some of that stuff, I think it's going to lead people down a hole of relationships, which they may not have thought of, which could be very beneficial. It, it, I, I'm, I'm watching it because I think it's, there's some real, there's some real juice in there. Yeah. I didn't even know about, uh, you know, relationships from the context of human design. So that's something I'm going to have to like look into now too. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah, it really is. Um, there's a girl named Anya Zebra. I'll put you in contact with her. She's really good at it. And, uh, Jason Sheffield is another gentleman I talked to. It's, it's, it's really interesting to think about. So, you know, your academic background includes a master's degree in strategic communication and a bachelor's degree in media communications with a minor in Vedic science. How do these academic foundations contribute to your holistic approach in coaching, integrating both modern communication strategies and ancient philosophical principles. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> the underpinning of what I do. <laughs> so my master's degree is from Columbia, and I studied neuroscience, um, specifically in you know all aspects of st strategic communications. So right. that's marketing, journalism, corporate communications, um, user studies, like really like any aspect of communication and like why we communicate and how we communicate and the, the meaning and, and, and aspects of it. So the neuroscience again is, is 
like uh, 90% of it, right? Like understanding right. The, the, the brain science. So that's where my love of science comes from and being very like strategic and codified and methodical with my work. And also in the way I explain it and teach it to people that I work with, you know, in my clients. So that's that. And my undergrad was also in communications, uh, but more from a storytelling pers pers perspective. There was no science. It was a Bachelor of Arts, right? So there's no science. It's studying the hero's journey, uh, analyzing right. movies, understanding the different types of writing that exists different styles, editorial styles, et cetera. Um, and then my minor was in Vedic science, which, uh, so I, I told you I lived in that um, community in Fairfield, Iowa. So my undergrad was at Maharshi University. So I... Oh, I think we lost her for just a minute, but she'll be back. She has an incredible background in communications and strategic marketing, as well oh. as the... Oh, there she's back. Okay. Hi, are you there? We're back. We're back. So sorry. We're, I live in Chicago and we're in the middle of a blizzard, so I think it might be affecting my connectivity. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I, no. I think that's what occurred. You I, left I us right off at Vedic Science, right off okay. at, at Vedic Sciences. Yeah. So, um, so then, so my minor was in Vedic science. So then I studied the Vedas, which is the ancient mm. text of India that was written, you know, approximately 5,000 years ago, but from a scientific lens. So again, Ooh. being very, but so being codified with, with that, like with all of the, the sutras and, and all of the Vedas. So understanding Ayurveda, which, um, I don't work with as like, I'm not an Ayurvedic practitioner, but it does come into play sometimes when I see like energy management's like, okay, well you can right. change this in your diet a little bit. You can change like the elements are this way. In, in in your you know um the season that you're in so this might be worthwhile um also but then also for the meditation side so meditation can be very scientific right and there's different types yeah. of meditation there's different levels of meditation as well so that's the vedic science part of it um and then obviously uh part of it is philosophy which i think is very valuable like karma theory is something that i absolutely mm. love which is uh why my, my brand is called samskara samskara.co and the system is samskara system because in karma theory, um, which aligns very beautifully to neuroplasticity, is in karma theory, the reason we have karma is because there is a, a moment that has occurred, whatever that moment is, and that causes an impression in our mind. And that is samskara. And that impression will then lead to a tendency. So you're more likely to do something. You know, an example is the first time you eat chocolate for people who like chocolate. Not everybody does. The, the first time you eat it, like, oh, this is good. So that's your tendency of like, oh, I might eat it again, right? And then you have it, uh, and then it's, it given in your environment and then you eat it again and then that's another moment of impression and that karmic imprint occurs and the next time you have that impression the um the desire it's stronger now that tendency has deepened which is a cementing of that neural pathways so your tendency grows into into larger tendencies and eventually it can on the other side of the spectrum is addiction right everything mm -hmm. that we have so to undo karma you have to get rid of the impressions of the mind so <laughs> So that's, that's what I focus on is like undoing the impressions of the mind. So we, at an energetic, philosophical, spiritual level, we get rid of the karma, but we also changing your brainwave or changing your body or changing all of these things and who you are as well. So I, I bring in all of these um, models of thinking from the Vedic science world. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's impressive to think about that. And on some level it, 
it's mind blowing to me to think about the profound changes that can come from a simple idea, right? Like changing this impression, like it sounds easy, but it can have profound effects on not only you, but the relationships you have with people, the way you see the world, the way you interact with the world. And just, it's kind of mind blowing me to think about. Yeah. It's like your story of the, of the FBI, like yeah. that one interaction just changed you fundamentally for like many hours. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. It, what do you think about wellness as being contagious? Often we know when we get sick, people are like, oh, don't be around George. You've got the cold. You're going to catch the cold. But can wellness be contagious as well? You mean like being well and being happy and, and yeah, being well like, inside? Yeah. Like mm -hmm. talking on this conversation, like I feel pretty good about it, you know, or when you're around certain people, it's almost like you pick up the mm -hmm. vibe from them or you you pick up the, maybe it's an energy, maybe sickness is an energy, the same Oh, here's a, here's an awesome one for you. Okay. So what is the difference between illness and wellness? Just think about it for a minute. Think about the language oh, I, of it. I've got, I've got the answer for you. <laughs> Tell me then. It's dis -ease, right? Like <laughs> disease is dis-ease. When you're right? not at ease, that right? is illness. Right. And wellness is at ease. It's, it's alignment of all of the things in your body and your mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's another hint in there too. Like illness, the difference between illness and wellness is I and we. Illness being mm. I, wellness being we, right? Yes. Like, oh, there's another little, someone dropped that one on me and I had to take a knee like for that. a minute. <laughs> I like that. I like yeah. that. Yeah. But, but I do think wellness is contagious. Like we see that yeah. in, you know, different um, studies, right? Like groups of communities that live longer than others. Right. Um, there's obviously like nutrition and exercise and all of that. But the biggest component is often the social factor, right? right. We see that there's a, like a community, there's like a bonding that occurs between people. And that's what actually enables them to live longer. <laughs> so there is right. that component of it. Yeah. Like the blue zones. Like you start looking yeah. at the blue zones, right? Yeah. And also this, I can't remember the name of the town, but it's in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book uh, in Great upstate book. New York. He talks about it. R Rosetto, the Rosetto mm. effect. That's what it was, right? These people uh, lived very unhealthy. They had a horrible diet and smoked and drank like too much, but they all lived longer than anybody else. It's because of the social aspect of it. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that particular idea of wellness as a contagious energy is also a way to help you treat others in a more effective and wonderful way. Like when you begin understanding that my wellness depends on these people in the community being well, you know, yeah. you, can give, you, you can begin to see the fractal nature of it a little bit. Like, hey, George needs a little help over here. You know, let's go, let's go cheer yeah. him up. Or, you know, all of a sudden, in anybody who's ever done that, anytime you've ever gone to, to be in someone else's presence and you bring them a small gift, maybe it's a card, maybe it's a kind word, like that makes you feel good in some ways. Like you're exchanging that energy, right? Yeah. And it's mirror neurons, right? Yes. So <laughs> going back to it. Yeah. And, and, and part of like when I'm coaching before I start any session, I always like check in with myself. Like, am I in the right headspace? Am I in the right mind? Like, am I going to have me in a good place to have a good session? And if something mm -hmm. like doesn't seem like it's going well, I am always like, what, what am I doing wrong? In, mm -hmm. in me to cause this reality for this other person in any mm. interaction. So it's like get, getting, that's getting really meta, but I think yeah. it's a very powerful like perspective to have. Do you ever feel like with the more clients you bring on, the more people you help, the more you're learning about yourself? Yes. That's why I, <laughs> self, selfishly, that's the biggest reason. Like with everyone I coach, I get to work on myself with this. I know it. Yeah. It's just like burning through the karma much faster. Yeah.
Yeah, that's beautiful. I, so what is your relationship with plant medicine? Um, I'm so sorry. My notifications are on. If you could hear that. Yeah, no worries. No worries okay. at all. So I, had, I had it on for a certain time and then just, but I love this conversation. So I okay, good. So, okay, so good. First, are you, you're okay on time? Cause I got yeah, some more I'm, questions. I'm, yeah, no, I'm good on time. Okay. Okay. Um, so with plant medicine. So when I was in my twenties, I did a lot of, uh, like trips, like big plant medicine journeys. Right. And it was, it was very incremental to my growth. I don't think I would have been as open to, non-plant-based ways of, of healing and exploring mm -hmm. consciousness if it hadn't been open for me first through plant medicine, um, specifically mushrooms and also LSD, which is not a right. plant, but that as well. And, and I did right. some peyote as well. I live in Arizona and it's legal in, in churches right. there. So mm -hmm. I was thinking, yeah. Uh, but today um, I, I don't do plant medicine um, at all in journey. I have in combo. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's really considered plant medicine, but you know, it's the, the, the poison from the frogs that you mm -hmm. get. Yeah. I have the like, probably can't see the marks on my skin that are there. So I do that. And then I have microdosed here and there on, on mushrooms um, in like the last five years, but it's not a big part of my life today, but I think it's a very powerful medicine and it opens you up uh, permanently to a lot of things. Yeah. I, I think that there's a relationship between plant medicine and language. And it speaks earlier mm. to the idea of like seeing the vine grow. And yes. for me and some of the people that I've spoken to, there's this thing that we bump up against in life. And it's like the, the inefficiency of words, the ineffability of an, an experience. That's like, I want to tell you about this thing, but I can't because I don't have a, I don't have a linguistic pathway for it. You know? Yeah. But I think that the Vedas, the Sufi poetry gets really close. Like, they are, like I get goosebumps when I think about reading Rumi or, you know, the Vedanta tradition of the sutras. Like, there's something so beautiful in there. And I, I can't help but think that the language used in those texts provides me a similar feeling to a deep trip on a psychedelic plant medicine. Have you felt that yes. or what's going yes. on there? Yeah, I agree. So the Vedas specific to that, the the the, the rishis, the the sages that cognize it, they said all Vedas and all knowledge and all wisdom is either shruti or smriti. So shruti is what is heard. Mm -hmm. So you have to like listen very quietly for it, and then smriti is what is remembered. So it's just a remembrance. Nothing is um, invented or created. Everything is heard or remembered. And I think in, probably in your experiences and many people who are on a journey, so it's happening. You're able to remember things. It is, it is within you. Like you are a piece of, of the cosmic, you know, nature, right? Like going back to the analogy of the DNA in, in the human body, we are a piece of that universe, so that wisdom, that intelligence, that's it. That's there. We just remember it. So that I believe that remembrance begins to occur. And we also at some level can hear things. I don't know if you've ever actually like literally heard things, but that occurs as well. Yeah. I'll never forget. I remember one time I, I had taken a really large dose and I remember like it hit me super fast and I was like, who's gonna be a deep one right here. And I remember like, I'm, I gotta, I gotta like take a bath or something. And I remember being curled up in the bathtub and like just hearing this voice talk to me. And it was the first time in my life where I heard a voice talking to me, but I couldn't see anything, you know? And that is a very scary feeling to be like, Depending. dude, yeah. whoa, what, who are you? What is this? You know? And, and like, I, I found a way to make, friends with the monster under the bed if that makes sense for people and like but in the beginning like it 
it gave me a lot of empathy to people who find themselves in a psych ward, who find themselves, yeah. you know, and, and ultimately I think that that's what some of this medicine should be used for is like this idea of like, look, these are real states people are having. And yeah, it's, I agree. It's like it's scary. Like it's, it's crazy to think about, right? Yeah. I think that a lot of people who are in psychiatric care are probably in the middle of some spiritual breakthrough. Yeah. Uh, and we just need to, instead of treating it as like a disease, like let's support them and like pushing through it in, in whatever capacity. Yeah. And, and psychedelics is a very powerful medicine to do that. Yeah. It's, I was listening to a lecture from um, Dr. Rick Strassman and Abigail. I'm sorry, Abigail. I'm having a, time remembering her last name, but they, they did this lecture recently and, and it was on the idea of derealization. And I just stopped for a minute and think about like, what is derealization? And some of the things they were talking about was the prolonged use of psychedelics may lead some people into states of derealization. And they were talking about the negative aspects of it, but I couldn't help think about the positive aspects of it. Like on some level, the idea of derealization is the idea of waking up from this conditioning on some level. And it's kind of a newer word that I haven't heard thrown around so much. But when I say the word derealization to you, what do you think of? Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, well, how do you define that? That's like the first yeah. thing that in my head. Um, but if you're asking me to define it, um, yes. <laughs> uh, I guess not maybe not making assumptions about an experience or a, a object of focus. Mm. Mm, including myself and, and you know any aspect of experience like yeah understanding that reality is not reality <laughs> i heard a great quote one time there was something along the lines of your reality is not reality even though it is reality and actuality <laughs> <laughs> i love that po that poem yeah. <laughs> right it's 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 interesting to think about, but this gets us back to the idea of the Vendanta tradition and, and the relationship between psychedelics. You do get this other perspective, whether it's in the verses or whether it's in these different states of awareness. And that perspective, be it a third person or be it an observer, that can have really compounding effects on how you deal with traumas in your life or relationships. Maybe you could speak to a time when you found yourself in a different state of awareness and, and how it affected the outcomes of things in your life. Do psychedelics or just any altered states of conscious experience? Let's start with psychedelics and then we'll move into another one. Okay. Oh, gosh. I'm trying to reflect. So I've had experience with like telepathy. Okay. When, let's I, hear it. when okay. I was uh, um, tripping with, with you know, friends and, and, and lovers when I was in my 20s. Yeah. Um, so that has been very, that was very interesting. It's probably the most powerful experience of like sensing another person's thought and like verbalizing it. Like that's what you're thinking and feeling yeah. it. And, and, you know, remembering in this moment, they're like, yes, it is. And then they would do it for me. So that, yeah, that's probably the most powerful one from psychedelic experience. What, so what is it? Yeah. It's just, just your question on communication earlier, right? Like that energetic exchange. Like how much that, that to me is an incredible incredible bond for like that is something that can bond people together the fact that you can think on the same level as them mm -hmm. and, and, and have the same thought as them is something that could really and, and maybe this is why it's why psychedelics are having such profound effects in couples therapy you know whether it's mdma which is mm -hmm. not really a classic psychedelic but you know these these yeah. particular states of awareness are really helping bring people together yeah is that a common experience i didn't know it was this this telepathic exchange 
I think it's more common than people think. Okay. You know, I, I think that, I think there's something to be said about picking up other people's energies. And like you had mentioned earlier, some of these different states allow us to listen to the, to the sound of other people's heart coherence, or at least that's what it seems like in my level. I don't know how common it is, but I think I've heard about it in different trip reports and in different people's experiences before, especially, especially this one, Supri, like in, <clears throat> when you listen to some people that have used psychedelics in a group setting, or more importantly, a ceremonial setting, yeah. like that's when you really begin to see that type of telepathy start taking place. Maybe you could speak to the idea of states of awareness and, and ceremony. Yeah, I think ceremonies are, are are more powerful than like, you know, doing that as opposed to not doing yeah. it. Um, doing psychedelics. And, and the reason is because, well, first of all, you're setting an intention uh, right. where you typically you're not. And the, just the power of intent in Vedic word, term is sankalpa, just, just the act of setting an intention, you're the, the um, observer effect, right? Mm -hmm. And you're creating that effect that it, it's powerful on so many levels. So just that alone, just setting the intention, forget everything else that goes on into the ceremony, like that in itself is incredibly powerful. But then, you know, a good shaman or a good guide will do things like put up a protection, around mm -hmm. you because there are also energetic forces that are negative out there that can come. I don't know if you've ever experienced them. I, I did in my twenties for sure felt some negative entities that I wasn't sure what they were, but I felt them and experienced it. But I think if I was in a shamanic setting, which I have also experienced, it would not have occurred. So that protection is there and then guiding you, guiding your soul and helping you purify through the layers in a more um, easy way. Than that than could be otherwise. I mean, certainly people have like good journeys and bad journeys, yeah. but it can become, I think, easier um, if you have a guide there. You know, it, it brings up an interesting question, especially for someone who has has a foot in both worlds. You know, earlier in the conversation, you spoke about moving between these two different cultures and being able to navigate the cultures and language between them. How do you see? Or do you see an absence of ceremonies in the Western world versus the 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 Eastern world in which you have a more familiar background with? Yeah, I do. And mm -hmm. it's it's always very interesting. Um so so my I referenced my brother earlier. So he died mm -hmm. two years ago. And I went and in the Hindu tradition, when somebody dies, you there's a lot of we have rituals for, you know, birth, mm -hmm. death, marriage. Like those are three big ones. We have rituals yeah. for everything. And you know, there's multiple rituals of the, the the his actual like funeral. One week later, we do something for her soul because the idea is the soul is still traveling and like trying to get latched. I could become a ghost. So basically yeah. preventing him from becoming a ghost. And then and then exactly one year anniversary, which just passed this last summer, and you do another big ritual. And whenever I tell you know people like, oh, I need to travel, like I have to you know go to the country to do this thing for the anniversary of my brother's death, and we're actually going to celebrate, like it's going to be a big yeah. party. And you know, to, for Westerners, like what? Like death is celebration, mm -hmm. and then and then there's a ceremony, and all of the things that occur. But to me, it's very power. Obviously, there's all these like religious reasons, whether it's you know real or not dogmatic or not there's, there's a lot of layers there uh, yeah. but i think just having that ritual just for the family is very healing and powerful like just this death when i see i've never went to a western funeral in my life i've only seen it in movies but when i see it in movies people are crying and getting drunk so i'm just like that's yeah. very different than my own experience of how death is is done it's through these rituals and ceremonies that have various meanings and purposes behind it um, and there's other rituals too. Like that's, that's a big one, but you know, when like a woman gets her period in the Indian culture, there's mm. a tradition of 
done. It's a rite of passage, right? And mm, that used yeah. to be in, in all cultures across the world. Now we don't do it. So I think these moments of transition, I think maybe is, is a good way of thinking about it in our life. Having rituals or ceremonies can be very powerful, uh, whatever they are. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. I, you know, I like to read. I'm. A, I, lo I love to read. I love to learn. And you know, there's um, when you read Aldous Huxley's work, like you can almost see a rite of passage. It's pretty meta too. Like he, you know, you start off with the doors of perception, and then you move into Brave New World, but then you move into the island, and you can see, at least in my opinion, the way in which he was able to define the potential use of soma or psychedelics into the world and when you look at brave new world you see this sort of caste system that's built where people yeah. turn to soma to escape reality hey this is too much i'm gonna escape for a little bit this is using it as an escapism but then you look at his some of his later works like the island and you see it as this ritualistic use where kids at the age of 12 find a mentor and climb this mountain and sit at a church and start to understand what is possible when we begin to use our brain at a level that is resonating for everybody. And I think that like the rite of passages is something that's, that leads to escapism. You know, when, yeah. when we, when we have young girls that don't understand like, Hey, you know, this is marking you into this world of womanhood and the same for a man. Like, Hey, this is marking you from a, from a yeah. boy into a man. Like we get stuck. We don't have these cultural road signs to say, okay, you're next level now start. This is yeah. the new way. I wish like, what how how can we is there a way where we can reintroduce some of that into the culture so i think there's different you know uh like men's group and women's group that do it for okay. for people specifically there's a yeah. lot of people that do that work uh, i can't think of one specifically but it exists and i think a lot of that work that people do is like helping men and women realize you're no longer a girl or a boy it's mm -hmm. some part of your subconscious is still stuck there but i think it also starts at the family level right like help ha having some tradition it's, it's never too late to start they like, do it with your families now and it's not only for the, the person it's also for the collective right like in the case that you're describing of a of a child becoming an adult in either gender right. um or non-gender then it's not just for that 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 person to realize they've changed but it's for everyone else to realize they've changed right yeah. it's twofold it's for it's for everyone to see that so i think creating new ceremonies new rituals for your community for your family is a good place to start but certainly it, it exists there's groups out there that do this I wonder if we could harness some of the strategies of like the DE, the DEI for this. You know, when you when you look at Audible or you go to the bookstore or you watch a movie, you can see the influence of like the DEI message out there, right? Like, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could supplant, not maybe not supplant, but we could inject into all of the literature this idea of ceremonies, like, hey, mm. in this story, this girl becomes a woman. Hey, in this story, this boy becomes a man. Like. It doesn't matter what what gender or whatever it is. Like we could begin to inject a new cultural or revisit the old cultural myths and start putting that back into the stories. I think that could be a way to like kind of pepper it through the community on some level. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think story <laughs> storytelling is is, the, right? is is like you know mass change, right? Yeah. <laughs> People yeah. hear stories or consume stories and then they adopt those things, whether it's a book or a movie or whatever. Yes, I I think that is a a uh, good mechanism. Yeah. I think I read somewhere that like you need 3% of the, the population to start enacting a change. And I, I think that if 
just the people we talk to, if we could maybe just talking about just talking about it here is a way we're enacting change on some level. But yeah, are are you hopeful to see the positive change? Like a lot, a lot of people right now think that we're in, myself included. I think that we're in this time of profound change. Like what, when you look into your crystal ball or when you look into the future, what are some of the biggest changes that you're, you're extremely positive about in the near to midterm future? Sustainability. That's that's the biggest one. Um, I, I, you know, this obviously like uh, an emerging trend that is needed of people becoming more focused on the environment and and nature. Um, I think we've been focused on ourselves and changing ourselves, but also changing our relationship to nature and becoming Mm. more sustainable. And I'm very excited to protect the earth um, and and see the earth in a different way. And I I think it's only going to keep growing uh, at, you know, rapid levels in the, in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I, I'm a big fan of Alan Watts. And I, one of his, his quotes is that you don't come into this world, you come out of it. And I've really begun to think about that aspect, you know, like, wow, like we are part of this earth. And then we are getting back to the quote that you like from Gandhi, like we are the change that we want to see in this world. And yeah. you can really kind of dive behind it a little bit. And I don't know, it's, it's fascinating to me. And Supriya, I got to say, I'm, I'm always fascinated and thankful and grateful to have conversations like this, where I get to meet someone and then our conversation just blossoms into this more amazing thing than I thought. And we get to share it with everybody online here today. And um, I'm super thankful for that. But before I let you go, Supriya, where can people find you? What do you have coming up and what are you excited about? Um, sure. So I have a website, www.samskara.co, or you can follow me on social media on, on anything, LinkedIn, Instagram, fa- uh, Facebook. I'm not on Twitter slash X anymore for ethical reasons, which I will not get into right now, <laughs> but on all the other platforms and TikTok. So I'm on all the, all those platforms or my website. So that's where you can find me. Uh, what I'm up to, um, I'm just continuing to do the work. And, and I'm doing more podcasts. This is yes. like my third podcast. So I'm up for more, more conversations. And, and this has really been amazing. I did not know where our conversation was going to lead today or that we'd be talking for uh, two hours. So this has been wonderful. Like you're amazing to talk to. You're a great host. Um, I love all the rabbit holes that we went into and the, and the, the questions and comments that came through. So it's, it's really been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. And I know like there's already a few podcasters on here that were reaching out. So they're probably going to reach out to you too. And I, I, I admire the, the conversation that is, um, you know, we don't know where it's going to go. It's like a, it's like a nice walk with a friend investigating some territory. Yeah. So I really appreciate it. And we'll be back more and we'll get more. The next, the next step I think is to have more people in the room, more voices, and it creates a better harmony. So ladies and gentlemen, hang on briefly afterwards. I still want to talk to you for a moment, but ladies and gentlemen, Thomas, Jenna, um, Clint, everybody, Mark, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. And um, I hope you all have a beautiful day. Go check out her site, reach out to her. She's an amazing individual. And that's all we got. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way. I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. 
I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.